A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawny man? It might finally be time to accept that Leicester City are not only going to win the league, but are also the best team in the league, which isn't necessarily the same thing, according to uh, a lot of, uh, according to a narrative that's been running through the second half of the season. That's my thesis in today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Kent. Hi, Owen. How are you? So, there's been this narrative that Spurs are, in fact, the best team, even regardless of whether they end up lifting. A the narrative team. which I, Owen, have been part of in my uh, writing about this season. I had my doubts about that already. Oh, that here we go. Here we go. And those doubts were. Wriggling out of the woodwork. Oh Pardon? no, I've talked about this already. I've talked a couple of times actually. Um, and those doubts were confirmed on Monday night, right? Compare that response, Spurs' insipid, pathetic response to conceding oh, an equaliser. Oh. <laughs> are you going to give my, theory, my thesis any go on. truck or are you no, going to make grunting noises? What's the, well, go on, what's the thesis? Okay, so uh. Spurs concede that goal to West Brom and immediately, I won't say give up. But don't do a huge amount to uh, don't have a huge amount of fire lit under them to actually go and save their season, save the Premiership title push. Whereas Leicester can see two hammer blows against West Ham and come back with this frenzied assault, long throws, a penalty. This against um, West Ham a couple of weeks ago should have had a penalty. Eventually got a very soft one. I'll, I'll grant you that. But at least they were in and around the box to get that penalty. And that was a Leicester team with ten men as well, and also with only four minutes left compared to Spurs. I think sixteen, seventeen minutes left. Mm. Uh, when they conceded their goal. It's only a snapshot. It's only one game versus another game that are comparing here. But it's just that Spurs have been portrayed as this remorseless machine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is true when they have a team beaten or when they know they're going to win a game and they absolutely crush them and roll all over them. But there's been a load of tight games all season, like Monday's match, where they get dragged into a contest and can't fight their way out. Mm. Look at the crappy draws they've had this season. West Brom twice yeah Everton twice yeah that's bad that's bad that's two that's four draws that you should be mm. converting at least three of into victories Arsenal twice and obviously there's nothing disgraceful about that but you want to be winning one of those North London derbies mm. uh, Liverpool twice again and mm. um, they've drawn 12 times that's the third highest number of draws in the league and the other ones Swansea they drew one of the Leicester games drew against Stoke drew against Chelsea None of them abysmal results in their own right, but that's happened way too much for me to consider Spurs the best team in the league. The, the team that they remind me of and the manager that Pochettino reminds me of is actually Rafa Benitez. Uh, when, when Liverpool, uh, remember the team 2008-2009, yep. when they finished second in the league as Spurs looked likely to do, and the reason was that they drew so many matches... They lost very few. I think they only lost three. Yeah, Spurs have only lost four, which is not bad at all. But there was just too, too many draws, too many, you know, too many games that they should have won. And a similar type of team. I mean, Kane, I remember saying when Kane uh, started scoring a lot of goals 
initially for Tottenham that weirdly the player he reminded me of was Torres. You know, when Torres used to be kind of, uh, not the way Torres is now or has been for years, but the way that he used to be when he was kind of uh, still able to, still had that freedom of movement. Um, and, you know, he's obviously been the, the reason why Tottenham have been so, I mean, he's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think that he's better than, yeah, I think he's better than Jamie Vardy. Vardy has arguably had an even better season than Kane, but I do think that Kane is a better footballer. Um, but yeah, it's 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 true. They've they've got. I mean, Miguel Delaney had written a big piece about them, in which he pointed out just how young the team is. Yeah. I mean, if they had won this title, which they could still do, there's still a chance. But it would now require like a five thousand to one, you know, uh, sort of belly flop from Leicester at this stage. You know, having got themselves into this position, they it, it, now for them to lose it from this position is almost as unlikely as it is <laughs> yeah. for them to be in this position in the first place, which shows that it's possible, but, you know, very yeah. unlikely. One of the points that was made to me when I was talking about this on Twitter was, well, no, Le- Leicester aren't, Spurs are the best team. Leicester are just more efficient. Mm. But to me, I think that's the same thing. I mean, surely if efficiency is getting wins and results, particularly in tricky games, then that's what it's about. You know, the, the consistency of it. I think Spurs are a team that has let themselves has not let themselves down I'm exaggerating slightly but has um taken the just found difficulties in places where the best team in the league shouldn't be finding difficulties and not finding a way to actually win like if you want me to throw another stat at you here Ken mm-hmm. nine Spurs won 19 games right 13 of those wins have been by more than one goal yeah. which is a lot, I would say. Leicester have had 22 wins, and only eight of them have been by more than one goal. You could use that to argue either point, by the way. I can quite clearly yeah. see why you could say, well, that means Spurs are better. But I just think that means Leicester are doing a hell of a job of winning close games, which is what makes you the best team in the league. Yes, uh, including the game against Tottenham. <laughs> Importantly, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did beat, didn't they beat Spurs at White Hart Lane? Wasn't that the yeah. result? I think the other one was a draw. They certainly beat them in one of the two, yeah. Um between the two. I mean, Tottenham have drawn more matches than anybody apart from West Ham and Everton, which is unusual for a team, you know, second in the league, that high up to, to draw that many matches. Um, Sounds like you're accepting my thesis here. No, I, I still think that Tottenham are a better, are better team. I just think they are. I think that they've got better players. Where are those players for the last 17 minutes on Monday night? Having a, having a meltdown. It wasn't even so much a meltdown. Yeah, maybe it was a meltdown. It, it was. was. They, were, they were freaking out. They, the, the fans immediately started cheering. You know, as soon as the goal went in, the fans realised, oh, hang on, we have to rally our players here. Yeah. The fans responded, as you'd expect. And the players just... Players were <laughs> short-circuiting, freaking out. And, and Pochettino himself uh, was kind of stalking around with this sort of um, air of doom. You know what I mean? He wasn't doing the inspirational Pochettino. Yeah. Uh, he, maybe he uh, he just wasn't able to feel it. You know, there was just they just weren't feeling it. They thought, oh, no, at the end of it all, we are still... Spurs, Spurs. <laughs> that's it. Cue this to team, lads. It's Tottenham, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I mean, again, Pulis taking a delight in in sabotaging a team's title charge. Uh, it was him at Palace a couple of years ago when Palace came back from three yeah. 0 down. Remember, um, you know he's he's like, yeah, we're still we're still in the league. It doesn't matter that like we've got nothing to play for. I've got the same to play for as I do in every game that I play. Premier League position. Mm. You know, how, how how far away from that bottom uh, three can I be? I'm looking forward to this audio being played back, Ken, when Leicester lose <laughs> the rest of their games in an unlikely collapse. But I don't think it's going to happen because I think they're the best team in the league. All right, it's been a momentous week for the families of those who died at Hillsborough and we'll be chatting to one of the barristers who represented them during the inquest. Looking forward to that conversation. Hey, Jonathan Wilson on another bad European night for Pep's Bayern Munich. Um Maybe they're being a little bit overhyped along the lines of Tottenham Hotspur, but that's all on the way after today's report on sport. So, uh, I mean, yeah, speaking of, of Pochettino's um, subdued demeanor, the way he's just stood there with his hands in his pockets and watched the sort of ashen face as Tottenham expired uh, over the last 17 minutes. Um, I was talking to a friend who was saying, you know, are the managers doing, are they kind of putting on more of a show now? The less powerful they become. You know, as as the manager's role actually diminishes away, as his actual power diminishes diminishes down to almost nothing, his kind of symbolic importance is growing, uh, especially as he leaps about in the uh, in the technical area, sort of drawing attention to himself and 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 uh, kind of trying to be, uh, you know, you know the the old cliche about the team. Um, 
it reflected the personality of their manager. Now the manager kind of has to almost be like a little mascot that reflects how the team, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you can see this in the Champions League semifinals. Diego Simeone uh, is an absolute maniac. You know, I mean, jumping up and down, um, leaving about Guardiola, though. Was Guardiola really feeling it last night? He was, again, just, just sort of pacing up and down, looking out uncertainly at the field. You know, well, I'm not really sure what's happening there. Of course, Guardiola had actually shown a little bit of managerial power by dropping Thomas Muller. A bizarre decision that absolutely nobody could understand. It was just it was such a weird decision. You know, I mean, Raphael Honigstein, for instance, who uh, I, I don't think is, is one of these guys who is always there ready to, you know, have a go at Pep Guardiola when a result doesn't go his way. I think generally whenever he's been covering Pep or the general tone of what he's been saying is Guardiola's done amazing work here. You know, he's he's brought things to a very high level and the players, regardless of what like Franz Beckenbauer says on TV when they're losing to Real Madrid at halftime or, you know, the players will say, this guy is absolutely brilliant. But, you know, his, his piece before this game was Bayern need Muller more than ever. <laughs> so it was just to see him not playing. It's just what, what is going on here? My only thought was that maybe Pep Guardiola. Okay, there are other sports, rugby being the obvious one, that being a substitute isn't seen as like a total disgrace. You know, it's actually you could be as important potentially as, as the players who start, and that's taken a few years to take hold in that game. I st- even though substitutions have existed in football for so long, mm. I still think there's the you need to be in the team really to feel part of it. But I, I, I was thinking maybe what Guardiola has in mind here is that. Thomas Mueller is a very intelligent player. Yes. Like a really smart guy. You'd imagine if he wants to go into coaching, that's what he'll do, as long as he can articulate what he thinks about the game because he's, he's one of the smartest guys out there in the way he operates and finds space and, and all those things. So I would figure if he's watching a game from the sideline, he's a little bit like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You know, he's actually watching it as opposed to <laughs> half paying attention and joking around and then would be able to come on and influence a game with 35, 40 minutes to go. But... It wasn't even the first sub that came on in the end, I don't think. So that 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 theory doesn't fly at all. Yeah, and and the thing is that he doesn't score when he comes on as a sub. I think it's I think it's one goal in his last thirty. Yeah, right. One, one thirty substitution periods. Well, then if I had done some research, if I had spent less time focusing on my Spurs theory, Ken, and yeah. more on my Thomas Mueller theory, and read and read Raphael Hornstein's uh, piece. <laughs> so apologies to Raphael Hornstein. He, could he, be listening. Now he explains. Uh, yeah, it's terrible substitute. You have to start him. He's eight goals and eight starts. One goal in 30 substitute Okay, maybe here's a new theory. Maybe he thinks too much about the game when he's on the bench and he overanalyzes and therefore doesn't have an impact yeah, he, when he comes well, on. Well, he, uh, he said he was, he was kind of annoyed, but then he said, you know, if everybody who's on the bench gets annoyed, then the whole thing, I suppose you'd end up with a situation like 28 days later. You know, it wouldn't <laughs> be like, it wouldn't be a harmonious camp. Yeah. Um, but, uh, he's leaving a lot of pe- uh, people out all the time I mean what did Guardiola say I want a left footed player on the left and a right footed player on the right and I want another midfielder to help control possession okay but you know we all want things in life you know sometimes you gotta put your best players in the field <laughs> you know I- I'm sorry it, it, it sounds so moronic but sometimes it's it, is there a kind of can't see the wood for the trees thing happening here you've got uh, you know, a World Cup winning player. I, I don't think that Thomas Muller is going to be intimidated by these Atletico Madrid defenders. I don't think they can really get to him in the way that, say, they got to Arturo Vidal, really obviously. Vidal, it's not as though Vidal and Muller are, are competing for the same place in the team. They're very different players. But just in terms of how uh, Vidal was, I think, really put off his game last night by just what was being said to him. You could see him kind of looking around and saying, well, I can't believe what these people are saying to me. And, and everything was, was just a little bit hurried and, and kind of rushed and sloppy and he was distracted. I don't, I don't think that happens to Muller. I think, you know, we're going to talk to Jonathan Wilson maybe a, a bit more detail about that. No, Muller is quite likely to have the opposite effect. We do m- remember him getting your pal Pepe sent off, Ken. Thanks yeah. a lot, Pepe. He knows what he's doing. You know, Back he, in the World Cup, yeah. He, he is, he's not going to forget that. But at least, you know, the saving grace for Guardiola is that as he was subdued and not uh, not leaping about, he at least managed not to rip his pants. Because I don't know if you've been following what's been happening with Zinedine Zidane. Owned. Did he rip his pants? Did he rip his pants? He's ripped them twice in the last two Champions League rounds. What's going on there? He needs to move up a trouser size. 
I mean, Guardiola ripped his pants last year That's, against yeah. Porto. Remember I knew, that? I knew this. I knew something had happened along these lines before. Yeah, because he's because they jump around so much now, and the pants are so tight. The pants are so tight. This is the thing. These are middle-aged men. Hmm. Who are they trying to kid? This is a. Uh, the, 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 the standards they're being asked to conform to an impossible standard of beauty I think they're looking at too many magazines there are too many long flights they're looking at Esquire GQ all these kinds of magazines and filling their head heads with these wrong ideas about their body image Guardiola rail thin able to carry it off Zidane stands there on the sideline with his coat buttoned up now why are you doing that why do you why do you think Zidane always has his coat buttoned up is it because he's cold Oh, you think there might be a post-retirement punch? I think so. I think Zinedine Zan is going to have to make his peace with that. You know what? You know what he needs to do. I mean, because he's he's now ripped his trousers twice. I mean, the first time was actually really bad against Wolfsburg. He ripped like literally his whole arse was hanging out. It really was. You know, and he shred he shredded them by by just by moving around a bit too much. He got a bit too excited, sort of crouched down, jumped up, trousers gone. Lucky he's wearing the long coat. Um, but he needs to make his peace with this. He needs a pair of high-waisted trousers in the style of Vicente del Bosque that actually, where the waistline is on the belly button, they go all, half the way up the egg, the sort of egg-shaped torso, and just there, and just proud as you like. A, a blazer, uh, loosely open, and you just stand there. You know, it's Vicente del Bosque. Yeah. You gotta, you, you just gotta do that um, rather than doing what he's trying to do because nobody's fooled by those. Uh, by that buttoned-up coat, Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp dresses down a little bit, doesn't he? Compared well, to Jurgen his. Klopp wears sportswear. Yeah, you know, so he doesn't have to deal with this nonsense. Sometimes he he wore a suit, I think, for the for the Capital One Cup final, but otherwise he's he's generally in in sportswear. So elasticated waistband, freedom of movement, no problem. Um, he he actually gave an interesting interview there, where he was talking about the. Um, he was talking about uh, the Dortmund match. Liverpool obviously played Villarreal tonight uh, in the first leg of that semi-final. And uh, he was saying after the... Now, I don't know, probably this is just um, playing to the gallery back home, I guess. But he said, uh, to be absolutely honest, I was fine with the draw that is 3-3, which would have had Liverpool going out. Which seems like a strange thing to <laughs> say. But when I looked at the clock and I thought, oh, 77 minutes, there's a little bit to go. I didn't expect it, though. You can't expect a miracle. When we scored again, it was more of a shock than real joy at the end when I saw the happy faces I knew it was a special night you can't have 500 of these nights if you're really lucky maybe you get 10 in your life 10 is quite a lot by the way oh, of, yeah. those, of those types of matches uh, but he says the morning after the game was completely different usually after a match like that you wake up and think oh great what a wonderful thing this time I was not in the best shape to be honest I had no real idea why but then I realised ah uh, yes they lost I had 7 wonderful years at Dortmund I knew how they felt I knew what they would have done in the hotel and how it would have been when they woke up and met up for breakfast. I knew what the mood would have been like. So, uh, empathizing there with his... That's all right, isn't it? With his boys. Yeah, I guess. Um, but he tries to explain what... He, he was saying, you know, we aren't, we aren't a pressing team. Everyone is always going on about pressing and all this kind of nonsense. Well, that's not actually the kind of football we play. I mean, it's like every manager doesn't want to be the kind of manager he actually is. You know, it's like <laughs> Sam Allardyce doesn't want to be a long ball manager, even though he... You know, he's like ashamed of what he is and wants to say it's long passes. Jurgen Klopp says it's we're a ball possession team. Uh, the only real reason for football is to entertain the crowd. If they come twice and say it's boring, then they think about whether they want to come again. We're a ball possession team, but nobody realizes it because my image is pressing and counter-pressing. When I was younger, I called it things like heavy metal football. I have no idea why I said that. He really regrets that one. That Anytime, I've seen that come up in a few interviews and he seems to be, oh, I don't know why I brought that phrase up. Yeah. I well, he keeps. Yeah, he has to explain it. And it's, yeah. just, it's just like I just said it without thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, there now. were words that came out of my mouth uh, mm. without it actually being an expression of my football philosophy. But I do like the spectacular. When I'm in a room with people, I try to make sure the atmosphere is not worse when I'm there. As in, it's a good life philosophy. When I'm in the room, I want the atmosphere to be better, or rather, not worse. Because I'm here, you know what I mean? Yeah, if I can maintain the status quo here, yeah, I like it. When I'm involved in a game, I try to help ensure it is more enjoyable than when I'm not involved. Which is more of an activist approach to the game. Maybe he's trying to say the same thing in both situations. He is, yeah. When he says I'm trying to make it not worse, he means I'm trying to improve it. Make it better. But he just doesn't want to sound like he needs the big shot going around. Hey, I'm Jurgen Klopp. Hey. Everyone smile. 
as soon as I walk out of the room, everyone is just quiet and sort of feels sad. It's like, he's gone. I don't know if that's uh, if that's the implication of that. But um, they, they will play Villarreal. Soldado um, is, is playing up front for Villarreal these days. Well, kind of off the front man, Roberto Soldado. Did an interesting interview with Sid Lowe. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, why he f- why it didn't work out for him at Tottenham. And he kind of said, well, my head, you know, my head wasn't, wasn't really that good. Um, but he's playing kind of now uh, as a second striker rather than as a... Whereas he, he previously was a number nine when he played for Valencia. Um, he says, I think the change came from my time at Tottenham. English football is a lot more physical. I knew I couldn't be as static as at Valencia because I'd get overpowered in the physical duels. Maybe it's because of that plus the bad luck. Um, that I didn't score so many. I thought I could achieve more by avoiding the physical duel with bigger defenders seeking space elsewhere. And I've brought that new way of playing here with me. So, I find that kind of surprising, actually. It's kind of a striker admitting I chickened out of the penalty area. You know what I mean? He's like, I just realized that they were stronger than me and I, you know, there wasn't really, I couldn't do the physical duel, so I basically just retreated up the field and, and did what exactly? What did you do? Nothing, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't work, obviously, at Tottenham. It's kind of amazing, though, that they could spend, you know, nearly 30 million on a player who just decided after a few months that, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. Let's just, uh, and he says he's, he's basically been doing it since he got back. It's a, it's a habit I haven't shaken off. Um, I realized I developed this habit of coming to collect a feed or going wide when all I used to think about was being level with the last defender, shooting at every opportunity. There's something maybe subconsciously that makes me make those new runs. So he, he barely ever scores anymore. Maybe he's like trying to be like Thomas Muller, who we talked about earlier on. I mean, Muller isn't your standard, just stand on the shoulder last defender kind of guy either. But the movement he makes seems to be into areas where there are no defenders and he gets the ball and scores. Yeah. I mean, what is it? What's he got? 32 goals this season. So if you score 32 goals, no one's really too bothered. To it. Just the last thing I want to mention. I, f- I feel as though Jose Mourinho's efforts to join Manchester United are increasingly coming to resemble Conor McGregor's efforts to be on the UFC. <laughs> too. You know what I mean? There's something not right about this. Every few days there's another report this is happening. And it's kind of, well, why is it not happening? One thing that I was struck by, though, was just a picture I saw the other day. It was Danny Weber. Danny Weber, who um, people might remember if you ever played championship manager back in the day. He was an explosive young prospect at <laughs> Manchester United. He would always score, you know, 35 goals a season. Didn't work out for him that way in real life. He's now at Salford City. There's just a picture of him um, standing there at Salford City with Peter Lim and George Mendes. Mendes is in Manchester, but it's for Salford City. I kind of find this really... What is going on here? There's something about this whole situation. Why is Mendes getting his mitts into Salford City? And well, no, I mean, Lim, Peter Lim owns 50% of Salford City. Here are the, the other five shareholders, each 10% are Giggs, Skulls, Two Nevilles, and Nicky Butt. Yeah, give, give them their proper name. Um, class of 92. The class of 92, except for David Beckham. Um, and so you've got the Manchester United assistant manager as a 10% shareholder in this club where hanging out there is also George Mendes, the agent of George uh, George Mendes, the agent of Jose Mourinho, who's been trying to get this job. Uh, I mean, is this not a, all a bit strange? Do you not think that that's a bit weird? Possibly, but the football world is pretty small. Yeah, I guess getting smaller all the time. Yeah. I mean, never, never smaller than in um, in the city of Manchester. Let's wrap up Kennedy's report on sport. Edwards swinging away now, back up towards the halfway line, controlling the ball beautifully. The Irishman's falling back. He slips it out to the left wing. It's intercepted there by. It was a phenomenal kind of uh, idea that we could we could beat England. Wow! But it was not there was nothing nationalist about it. That's the point I'd be making. It was just a sporting thing. Giles. John would have grown up with that idea, you know, for example, and he was a great sort of folk hero in his, when John was young, you know, when he was about 12, <laughs> everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him, you know, but it, it was a kind of classic Irish street footballer, it was a street game here, you know. Oh, listen to that crowd roar, Ireland have scored after three minutes, Mixed the scorer, leading 1-0. And the crowd has gone mad here. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get into the Ireland-England game. Couldn't, because it was a lift over the style job. And I couldn't get one that day. 
So leg it back to the house and listen to the radio. Um, and what we needed that day was to beat England and we qualified for the World Cup. Um, and we won the up. It was just extraordinary. Uh, and with, in, the, in the last minute, Tom Finney got the ball. And he went down the right wing. Crossed the ball. And a fella called John Atheo. He played for Bristol City. Scored. It was just the most extraordinary thing. Philip Green didn't know what to say. There was no applause in the ground. And I was sitting there crying. We were just dead. Last minute, England again. It's like, whew, that was a deep, deep, deep shock to uh, everybody. <laughs> we, we didn't get over it for weeks. Uh, it was terrible. I mean, it's like, that's why I think football and sport in general, but soccer, all, all sport, of course, but the effect it has on kids when their team loses is deep. Score is a draw, Ireland won, England won, and so England have qualified for the World Cup Series. Ireland beaten just in the last second of extra time, of overtime. Jonathan Wilson is ready to go on the... I was going to say this week's Champions League, Jonathan, but there um, isn't a huge amount to discuss from the Man City game, really. A lot happened last night between Atletico and Bayern. Notably, uh, Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich again failing to score in a Champions League semi-final away from home. That's three in three that they've failed to do so. And His record, actually, in these ties is pretty pitiful. He's played five, so sort of two and a half uh, ties in full, five matches in Champions League semi-finals with Bayern Munich. They've lost four under his charge, only scored three goals, conceded 11, and all three goals were scored in the one match. It's not great. No, it's not great. Um, and I think this probably is representative of the problem actually goes back to his Barcelona days. His, his record in a way, Champions League knockout ties then, wasn't brilliant. Uh, Bayern have now gone eight Champions League knockout ties away from home without winning, and the last one they won was against Arsenal in February 2014. So that does suggest that there is some kind of problem there. Um, I mean, in terms of the, the, the three semi-finals, I think there's quite different issues each time. That Real Madrid two years ago, they got their tactics right and counterattacked them brilliantly. Uh, Barca last season were just a better team, but again, it was a tactical issue last night. So you do sort of begin to think that maybe it's this problem that I think you see in a lot of leagues where one team is significantly better than the rest. The Bayern essentially. They, they sort of drift, I mean drift is maybe the wrong word because they have played some great football in the league but they're not particularly tested in league games and as soon as they come up against really good opposition they, they find themselves unable to cope. I mean is that really what's, what's going on here Jonathan because I mean it's a, it's a problem that it's not just the semi-finals I mean it's against, it's against different, if you just look at the semi-finals there's three very different Spanish teams that they've failed to score a goal against even away from home. You know, there was a counter-attacking Madrid team, the kind of more possession-oriented Barcelona team and the sort of Simeone team. Um, three very different ways of, of uh, three different problems to solve and on each occasion, not even a goal. You know, this is, this is the problem. The closest they came to a, to a chance last night was Alaba having a shot from 35 yards. This style of football just doesn't create chances. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there is an element of that. I, I, but I think the fact that they are such different teams, it's very hard to, to pinpoint one tactical failing. And that's why I think it's it's something a bit broader than that. It's something, I mean, mental or psychological. It maybe gives us a wrong impression, but there's when they get to a game of this this magnitude, it's just so much harder than other things they face that they 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 find it hard. Maybe Guardiola finds it hard to adjust. Um, but Surely they so should have been steeled, though. Yeah, they should have been steeled by the quarterfinal, though. I mean, they got they got. Uh, a more than competitive tie against Juventus last time out. I mean, sure, that that com- surely that muscle memory just doesn't just disappear over the course of a few weeks between quarter and semi final. I do take your point. I mean, it's not it's not great for them to be playing these um, these essentially meaningless games in the league. But the quarter final second leg wasn't that long ago. Well, I think the Juventus and the Benfica games, you know, the, the 
you, I mean, maybe it is part of the same pattern, but you could see why you could argue that they weren't. The, against Juventus, you know, they went 2-0 up in the first leg very early, then got a bit sloppy and let Juventus back in the game. It was two you know, dreadful defensive errors in, in, in the home game that let Juventus uh, get the lead, which then led to them needing the comeback. So you could say that was sort of a mental switching off rather than you know, some broader picture. Benfica, they got the very early goal, and... and yeah, the tie was almost won because of that. Okay, the second leg became slightly twitchy late on, but because they got the away goals and that, that tie, they were they were always ahead. So, so I mean, yeah, they were tested, but I also think they they could say to themselves they shouldn't have been tested. There was individual failings, there was a loss of concentration that that caused them um, caused it to be a tighter game than it perhaps should have been. Um, but I, I, I also think, having said that, that you, you saw in their attempts to score last night a problem that occurred in, in that um, the, the game in Munich against Juve, that they ended up... I mean, it wasn't quite David Moyes against Fulham, but it wasn't far off. Just what, what do we do against this defence that sits deep that hold this line against us? And either you ping 35-yard shots like Alaba or you just put cross after cross after cross into the box. You know, Juventus eventually succumbed. And everyone, oh, well, yeah, great cross from Douglas Costa. It was always coming. Well, it wasn't always coming. It was a, it was a great cross, and it did come eventually. But last night, they kept putting the crosses in, and because Atletico was supremely well-organised at the back, because Savage and Jimenez both had great games, they they, they um, were able to cope with that. The big decision that Guardiola made last night, or at least the, the one that you know, sort of uh, commands most of the attention, is the fact that he left Thomas Muller on the bench. And this is significant for a number of reasons. I mean, number one is that Thomas Muller's outstanding record as a as a goal scorer in these Champions League knockout games, and it wasn't for him uh, scoring in the last minute against Juventus. You know, Bayern wouldn't be here. He's proven that he's a, a big game player. He's also a favourite uh, with fans of the club and Germans in general. He he might be the most popular footballer in Germany, um, at least when he's playing for the for the national team. Everybody loves this guy because. He goes on the field, he runs further than anybody else, he gets into really awkward positions for the defence, he scores a goal. Guardiola leaves him on the bench. Why would you leave a player like this on the bench out of a game like this? I, well, my, my suspicion is that uh, Guardiola expected Atletico to sit very, very deep and he, he expected them to pack you know, two banks of four, you know, uh, 20, 30 yards from goal. And he perhaps thought that, that Muller's strength, uh, that, that finding of space... Was was not what he needed to break that down. He needed somebody with with greater technical ability to, to to beat a man. As it turned out, that wasn't how Atletico played. Atletico generally this season, I, th- I think there were some stats in the Guardian on Monday that suggested that they they win the ball back. I think twenty three percent, twenty something percent more um, outside of their their final third. So in the midfield third or in the attacking third, more this season than they have done last than they did last season. So I think there has been an evolution in Atletico's game, and I think they did press a lot more than than, than many people expected, and perhaps uh, Guardiola expected. And in that circumstance of a team pressing you, then then yeah, having somebody who can find space, he can hit with slightly longer passes, probably would have been useful. So I mean, yeah, that, that that's that's trying to present an explanation for, for why he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I the, the, ex- the explanation is, that you... Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll let you finish your point before I interrupt. What were you, what were you going to well, say? Well, the, the, the question then is, once you've noticed that isn't really working, once you've noticed that Atletico are not playing the way you anticipated they would, why would you not play on Muller at half-time? Why would he be your second substitute who comes on? Yeah. Well, I I just think... I mean, the explanation that you gave is, is totally reasonable, but it's a very tactical explanation. And... That's sort of leaving out a lot of what this game was about last night. Look at Simeone. Look at the kind of emotion that he pours into the game. The, the kind of frenzy of the Atletico players was chest bumping each other after making tackles. This kind of stuff. You know, there's Absol- one stage they're pushing each other around, as in in this kind of yeah, well done. Absolutely. The, just the, the 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 competition, the 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 element of com- uh, competition just between the guys out there. To leave a guy like Thomas Miller out with all that he's done in the game, with his proven record in these games. Um, and with the kind of the fire and competitive instincts that he has. And also, by the way, the fact that he's the only really nasty or crafty player that I can see in that in that Bayern team that when Iron Robin isn't playing, the kind of guy who's going to force defenders to get booked and possibly send off. It just seems as though Guardiola was forgetting about a whole aspect of the game when he made that decision, maybe for tactical reasons, 
to leave Thomas Muller out. There were there were emotional reasons to have him involved. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I, I guess there's, there's two interlinked answers to that. One is that I think Guardiola tries to make football as, as far as possible as cerebral pursuit. He tries to take emotion out of it. And so, I mean, that that's sort of a very cutting dismissal of Jurgen Klopp that he had that somebody said to me, oh, yeah, Klopp's teams run further than anybody else. And his, he said, well, I prefer my teams to run less. He wants them to think more so they don't have to run as much. So he wants it to be as, as mental a game as possible. So, I, you know, I, I think that just the way he looks at a game, that wouldn't be something he considered particularly. But I also think there is a, a reasonable argument that if you get into an emotional battle with Atletico, you're not going to win. And therefore, you want to make it as unemotional as possible. You want to be cold and clinical against Atletico because that side is the most fired up side in you. I don't know. I, I remember Sergio Ramos. Sergio Ramos came out on top against Atletico Madrid. You know, it's, it, it can be done. Uh, but I think you need players who are, who are ready to compete. I mean, what you're saying about Guardiola trying to... Trying to I, I get that sense from him as well, that he actually... He would almost rather this side of the game didn't exist... And he would, you know, he like as you said, to make it cerebral, to to make it a kind of a, this is okay, lads, this is a problem we're going to solve, uh, as opposed to this but is a battle we're going to win. But he goes absolutely crazy himself. I mean, he goes as mad as Simeone. Well, we're not quite as mad as last Simeone. Last night he was, he was, I don't know. If I, I was, was I was watching quieter, it last yeah. night and I was wondering, I, I, I was amazed Simeone hasn't had those technical areas brought closer together so that he can actually <laughs> physically intimidate the other manager. Guardiola was going miles away from him, just repelling around. But you know. I mean, moving on from this game a little bit, imagine Guardiola trying to do this in the Premier League, where every team has got you know a couple of guys who can who can sprint like ten and a half second, hundred meters. Uh, you know, they're not afraid to you know kick the ball along, use elbows, and do all these kinds of things. I just don't understand how this style of football is going to work in that environment. I mean. We talk about Bayern's the the lack of competition in the German league being a problem for Bayern when they get to the semi-finals. The there's there's going to be too much competition in the Premier League for him to play this way every week. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a problem for him, and I think that's one of the reasons it's such a fascinating move. Um, I mean, I, I guess one of the reasons why why that tie was was so fascinating, and, and you know, even in the build-up, a lot of people talked about it. You know, their team managed some incredibly different schools of football although you know they both end up in in la liga your simeone i mean yeah if you look back at his 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 background he's right from an anti-football school you know when he was 14 his youth coach was victoria spinetto the man who invented anti-football at, at, at Vélez. he was the man who gave him the nickname cholo after carmelo simeone the, the, the player of the 50s and you know, that was what formed Simeone, is this idea that you fight for everything, you do what you can to win. And, and Spinetto, you know, anti-football takes on the very negative connotations with Isabel Diaz and Sandiantes. But under Spinetto, it just meant that he didn't believe in the tricks. He didn't believe in the sort of languid, bohemian style of, of La Nuestra, of, of Rivers' um, La, La Machina team. And, and that was called anti-football in the Argentine at the time. It then... Zabaldi, so, well, being one of his players, uh, goes to Estudiantes, makes them this horrible, vicious, nasty team who stab people on the pitch with pins. And you know, <laughs> you've got Bilardo, who um, who qualified as a gynecologist, and he had people in the medical profession feeding him information about his opponent's wives. So there's a, there's a case where Roberto Perfumo, the, the great centre-back, gets sent off for kicking Bilardo because Bilardo's been taunting him over this cyst that his wife's had removed from a particularly sensitive area. Uh, and so anti-football, you know, there's, there's two sides of it. There's the the, the, the fighting, organised side, and then there's the real unpleasantness. And, and Simeone sort of comes from both of those. Spinetta was his first coach, and then his his first sort of great role as a coach, I mean, he had a brief time at Racing, which ended when the president changed, but his first title was with the Estudiantes. And that team was built on Bilardo's team. Bilardo had, had promoted loads of youth players, he instilled his ideas, and Simeone takes that over. So, he, and, and Simeone's always said that, as well as he's done at Atletico, it's that Estudiantes which embodies his idea of football. So, the, I mean, that's a slightly roundabout way of answering your question, that Guardiola, I think, has a very specific way of playing which worked at Barcelona in La Liga as it was at the time. It's worked in Germany partly because those players have been brought up in the you know, the, the, the great reboot of the German system and in a league where he, his team had much more money than anybody else where they weren't being as challenged uh, as you would be in any case in, in the Premier League but he's also going to find a massive uh, difficulty of style 
there's not the English teams play anti-football in the in the Zabaldia way, but they do play it in the Spinetto way. Yeah, the, what you were saying there about the, I mean, I, I guess you, your book, the uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, the Argentinian football uh, book, is coming out pretty soon. I guess so. You've you've obviously been looking into this. Our faces dropped at that story, um, <laughs> just Jonathan. Just in case you were wondering, like, we, we we were still very much paying attention. No, we, we were, were quite speechless. stunned. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 nasty stuff. Uh, but but Simeone, I mean, the, the most recent example of his his own tendencies. Uh, was the other day when he threw ball or got somebody to throw a ball onto the field during the game. That's, I, that, that's not quite as bad, Ken, as what Jonathan's talking no, about. No, but it was it was more ridiculous. It was honestly more ridiculous. If if Simeone had been on the field or if a guy had come over to take the throw and Simeone had whispered something like that to him, okay, the guy might have turned around, shoved Simeone, there might have been argy-bargy, there might have been accusations. But it wasn't. it's not as though 40,000 people in the stadium would have been gone, have you seen, have you just seen what he did there? This is, this is a manager who asks somebody on, his be- on the bench, a ball boy or whatever, to throw a ball on during the game to stop something that's happening in the game. I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. I, I can't remember seeing uh, um, blatant, naked cheating like it from a manager in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, you kind of admire the, the, the gumption to do that, the imagination. No, to do I don't that. admire the gumption to do it. He's going to be banned for three matches now. He's going, yeah, to, he's going to be but, banned for the rest of the, of the Liga campaign. But I, I, I guess in that moment, he. He weighs up the odds and thinks if Malaga equalise here, the the title's over. So I've got to stop it. I mean, I'm not saying he's right, but I, I think um, you know. The, there's um, I'm reminded of something that Latin. So I'm going. I'm just giving you chunks of my book now. Yeah, no, but go for it. Jesus, keep uh, it up. There's um, uh, Antonio Latin, you know, the, the, the captain of Argentina, sent off in in '66. Um, he he hated Bilardo playing against him, and he, but he he had this this line about him. He said that. He always would stand absolutely on on the on the line on the on the very limit of the law, and every now and again he'd dip his toe over it. And he said, you know, he was always looking for for an advantage, and it didn't really bother him whether that advantage was illegal or moral or, or, or you know, he just wanted to win. And Simeone is exactly of that school. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there, Jonathan. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mel. Cheers. Thanks. That's an interesting one. This idea that Pep will take the emotion out of try to take the emotion out of things entirely well, this, this is what he does and he sees that as the best way to counteract a slightly crazed team like Atletico by the way I know last time we talked about Atletico Madrid I was criticised Ken by an Atletico fan for like, implying that there's just this bunch of <laughs> souped up lunatics going around kicking the crap out of other teams mm. not reflecting the quality of their play and in fairness the goal they scored last night was one of the best goals I've seen in the Champions League in a number of years. Oh, yeah. Individual strikes. They play amazing stuff. But, uh, you know, they do play on this sort of frenetic edge that other teams don't necessarily possess. That's why they're that's why they're able to marry the good footballers they have with, you know, that's why they're still able to beat teams with supposedly better players mm. that, that certainly the Barcelona should have and maybe that Bayern Munich are supposed to have. But uh, do you think that will work? In it? it sounds like you don't think this is going to work for Pep in the Premier League. I think it's going to be really difficult. I mean, the Premier League is kind of brainless. You know, compared to the type of football that he's associated with, you know, it's very calculated. It's very highly trained. You know, everybody is, you know, has to put in a lot of work in training ground to understand this this sort of sophisticated a machine with many moving parts. Whereas a lot of the Premier League is kind of about running around, you know, at, at, at great speed. All the other teams have got big, strong players and really quick players who will rip straight through. You know, one mistake and they're and they're in. It's not like Germany, where you know, it's, I'm, I'm not. The German league is full of. There's a lot of kind of collegey teams there. You know what I mean? There's a there's a little bit of uh, college student vibe off some of these teams. Meaning, uh, I don't really think that they're not the sort of. You know, the Premier League. You get these veteran mercenaries. You know, these these kind of hardened players who've been in a lot of different leagues are are here now making money in the Premier League. I think that. You know the general quality of the general quality of teams, undoubtedly, in my opinion, higher um, than in, than in Germany. In Germany, you know the the clubs are run in a more enlightened way. They bring through a lot more of their young players. They've got kind of uh, maybe a m- bit more of an academy feel, and a lot of the teams also sort of play in a similar way. 
in Germany. You know, they've got this kind of high pressing. It seems like it's really easy for Bayern every week. It's not going to be like that. Bayern are way better than Manchester City as well. That's the other thing. I mean, but he has to take over. It's not like if he could transplant Bayern to the Premier League, then okay. You know, Bayern could maybe do that against different teams each week. They've been doing it long enough. They've got some brilliant players. But Manchester City, he's got to teach them how to do that first. He's got to assemble the team. You know, which is which is a long way from from being assembled. He's then got to teach them how to play according to you know his various tactical schema, and he's got to do all this while competing every week uh, again <laughs> in a country which will delight in every one of his failures. Every time Pep doesn't win a game, everyone will point and laugh. That's the price of being Pep Guardiola. That's the price of you know the twenty million pound contract uh, being the the biggest. Uh, the biggest star, you know, of all these coaches in the league. Everybody will delight in his failures and it's going to be difficult. 27 years after the tragedy of Hillsborough, the families this week finally found the justice they've been waiting for and, well, not just waiting for, going out and actively searching for as the inquest concluded that the fans who died were unlawfully killed and multiple failings by police and ambulance services contributed to their deaths. We're going to hear now from somebody centrally involved in the inquest. James Megan was barrister for 77 of the families and I'm delighted to say he can join us now to shed a little bit of light on the process itself, I suppose. The case, first of all, I mean, I'm interested, James, to find out what it was like to work on. A really drawn out, kind of, as long as jury case in British legal history, in fact, centering on a really horrific disaster. I imagine not, not really an easy job to work on. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not a particularly easy job for a, a few reasons. I mean, as you say, the length of it is unusual. It was, I think we had something like our 310th day of, in court the other day, and the previous longest inquest in English history was the original in Pillsbury inquest, and that was about 92 days. So you're starting three times as long as, as any previous inquest that's ever been held. And the amount of material that was generated by the Hillsborough Independent Panel and by the concurrent police investigations meant that there are literally millions of pages that needed to be read and that's why we needed so many lawyers um, of all levels of, of experience to be working on it to try and trawl through all of that material to make sure that no stone was left unturned for the families. I was going to ask I was going to ask why you thought it went on that long because presumably there's you know there are inquests a lot of the time about a lot of different issues I mean what was it about this one that made it so complex uh, that, that meant to kind of smash the previous records? Well, there's, there are a few things. Um, first of all, because there's been so many different hearings in the past where people have given evidence, met all of the major witnesses would have given evidence probably three times before, so they would have given evidence of the Taylor inquiry, then the original inquests, and then they would have also, some of them would have given evidence in the course of the private prosecution. So they're that slows things down because you then have a lot more material and different things that the witness has said that needs to be processed and gone through in front of the jury. The other aspect of it that made it, made it a lot longer was that the South Yorkshire Metropolitan Ambulance Service was, was, for, was the first time that they've been subject to criticism and that aspect of the case is looked into and they also sort of stretched out the length of time that the pathology evidence took because of the way that they were running their case to try and exonerate themselves and that's something that the jury eventually rejected. So those are that's a sample of the kind of things that have slowed it down and made it longer but also, you know, looking into all of the stadium safety aspects that took a number of months and um, going through all the different planning and police procedures as well as how the fire brigade reacted and how the police reacted themselves. It just, it, it it was multi-layered and the first part was very close to a tribunal as we call them in Ireland or a public inquiry whereas the second part then had to tell each of the individual stories for each of the 96 and how they how they had come to the stadium how they had come about their deaths and that the coroner was very careful to make sure that that was done thoroughly because at the original inquest they were turning over many many families in one day and they weren't really you know giving the proper respect to the to the individual deceased and their stories. I suppose then with a case of that length and complexity, it's it's difficult to isolate um, any key moments, really. Um, maybe it's a question of the accumulation uh, of evidence over a very long period of time. But, I mean, when you think back over the case, is there anything that strikes you as having been a particularly important moment that made the difference in terms of the way that the verdict went? Very early on, I think we were able to, or, or lawyers up for the families were able to establish, you know, or, or, or create and develop the narrative that there was no evidence about lateness 
drunkenness and ticketlessness. And this be, this was able to, to become very clear in the jury's mind. So that was a sort of a cumulative process. And I think that, that, that narrative certainly helped. And then David Duckenfield's evidence in himself was, was quite unprecedented and, and a, a bit of a big change from what he had been previously saying at previous hearings. So the, those, those things, if you had to pick them out, one is a cumulative process and one is one individual witness, um, I suppose, were the, were the key points. But I mean, as you say, it's a long case and no one individual moment is a eureka moment for the jury, I imagine. Well, this, the slogan is justice for the 96. So when you look at this verdict, what justice do you think has been done? Well, this inquest itself has brought answers and brought to the fore material that families have never seen before. So they they have a much clearer idea. Most almost all families have a much clearer idea of what happened to their loved ones. But in terms of justice, this is the first time that this is the third time a jury has had to consider whether this was a case of manslaughter, and it's the first time that one has returned a verdict which is in coronial law is called unlawful killing but it's effectively the same as manslaughter in, in the criminal courts so that's that's a huge step and the next step you've probably heard the families talking about is, is accountability and there's an ongoing investigation by the, the police in the UK and the independent police complaints commission into whether there should be prosecutions arising out of it so I can't really talk about that because it's an ongoing investigation, but there there is potential for prosecution in the future. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. David Kahn obviously wrote this excellent piece the other day, and he's been there at the entire time for The Guardian. One of the many interesting points he made was about the demeanour of the police during the inquest. He says they came to Warrington Business Park mostly as old men with hearing problems, impaired memories, illness and trauma, yet many seemed oddly still like a force apart, speaking a macabre, dehumanised language, males, youths, casualties, intoxicants. Some did make expressions of empathy, but not many. I just skip ahead here. Others with bereaved families sitting feet away repeated their original allegations and went no further. Uh, what did you make generally of the the attitude, I guess, of the, the leading police officers from that time who gave evidence? Well, I think David Conn's analysis is, is excellent and his coverage of the inquest has been spectacular. And I, I, I'm not sure if it came across on the television, but when he press conferences, the families all applauded him. I mean, he, his description is spot on there was there was a range I mean, there were officers who came and said you know i did say terrible things in the past and i have now in hindsight seen the video and thought about it and you know i was unfair on the on the supporters but there were also those ones as david Kahn has described it who stuck to the old the old view and 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 held on to that and and indeed um the match commander's lawyers ran ran the case on that basis so yeah there there were um officers still clinging to this Old school, nineteen eighties um, police attitude to the world. What what does uh, what people? I think anybody who who kind of finds out a little bit about what was happening at Hillsborough and what's been happening in the twenty seven years since ultimately has to be struck by is the sinister way in which um, all of the establishment forces connived to create a story. Uh, they sort of jo- uh, you know closed ranks. Uh, you got the police. Uh, the politicians, the media, all agreeing on a kind of official lie, and the fight to sort of overturn it having to be led entirely from below. Um, one of the things that strikes me about it is there, there's maybe a temptation for people to look at this and say, isn't it terrible how awful things were in the 1980s? Thank God it's not really like that anymore. I mean, do you think that that's, it's maybe a little bit too easy to, to say this is how things were long ago and, and um, this sort of thing doesn't happen anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, it was only a couple of years ago that Ian Tomlinson, the homeless man, was attacked by police and, and killed. And he, you know, they didn't open a, they didn't open a criminal charge against the police in that case until after they, an inquest found him to have been unlawfully killed through, as you say, the campaigning and, and by, and by lawyers from the bottom up. And then the other, um, classic example is uh, the, the death of Jimmy Mubenga, who was um, strangled while being deported to being deported to Angola by granted private security officers, but ultimately a form of a set of the, of the state's mechanisms of control. And, and 
no investigation was started in the criminal investigation until after a, a jury had found them unlawfully killed in the in the in the coroner's court. And and in both of those cases, by the time they brought it back to the to the Crown Court to have a criminal um, prosecution, they weren't able to get um, guilty verdicts. And part of the reason for that, I, I always think, is the delay and the in the and the 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 extra time and and the extra. I don't know the extra, but I suppose delay is the, is the right word. That from when the actual incident happens to when when the charges are brought in court. So you do have these things happening with with great consistency. And um, yeah, the other example that Owen Jones has in the Guardian today is that um, of the, the the student protester who had his um, teeth kicked in 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 London by a police officer who was caught on on video or on on radio talking about how he was really going to give it to these people and uh, talking about the protesters. And had he not had his radio on that day, there would have been no chance of getting any sort of um, justice or any sort of um, challenge to, to his behaviour. He would have just w- walked away and carried on with it. So, yeah, you have to be very, very sceptical of the police in all their forms um, in, in modern times as much as in 1989. And James, a lot of people have, have made the point that, about how remarkable it is that um, so many of these families have kept going over all these years when I'm sure there's been plenty of incentive to just give up on it and, and move on with their lives is, is uh, maybe a callous phrase, but uh, certainly nobody knows how they would react in this situation, but these people have gone on and on and they finally got their justice, as people are calling it this week. You've seen up close... Um, what these people have been trying to do? Uh, how impressed? What, what what have these families been like to work with? Oh, they've been an absolute inspiration. They've been such a fantastic group of people. The things that they have put up with, and not not all of them are from Liverpool, you know, because Liverpool was such such so well supported back in 1989. They're they're from all over all over the UK, and you know they they have put up with all of this abuse, and they've kept doggedly. And consistently fighting on, and they've been, yeah, they're a wonderful, upbeat group of people, and, and it's been a real pleasure and a real privilege to work for them and um, to put up with, you know, the abuse that they, and many of them are Liverpoolians, but they as Liverpoolians received on on the back of all of this and this sort of prejudice and everything, and to 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 fight on and and carry on in the face of that is is just it's, uh, it's truly inspirational. Yeah, it's amazing stuff, James Megan. Listen, great to talk to you. Thanks, a million. Thanks very much. Bye. I knew the place. Clough, but he calls me Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We're doing lots for much. And then, but that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, that he calls me Rabbi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. A really great insight into um, into the case, into the inquest, why it took so long, how ultimately it went the the way it went, that it went the right way. Um, that point about the the police still having this very old school attitude is really interesting. I mean, I'm sure people are aware now that this has even moved on the last day or two. That uh, the South Yorkshire police officers were told in a not even an internal memo it was put put up on, on a website apparently for. Uh, for former police officers, um, but supposedly by accident, it wasn't meant to become public anyway. They were told to be proud of their work, um, despite the inquest conclusions. It's, uh, you'll be feeling sore, angry and disheartened, but you did a good job. We all did, uh, according to this mm. G up for the for the, the troops, which is absolutely um, astounding under the circumstances. You know, police are in a, again, in a difficult position. You know, these are the, these are the guys who, in the 1980s, were there... Uh, whose job was to fight the kind of, you know, the working class. To, they were the guys on the horses charging the miners, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, they Their job was to was to quell the civil unrest. That was what the state required of them. That was what they were, that, that was what they were supposed to do. Um, 
you know, what they did at Hillsborough uh, was not <laughs> was not what they were supposed to do. Uh, I mean, it was it was incompetent and it was uh, it was a disaster. Mm. Uh, it led to a disaster. But the but the kind of the underlying uh, attitude towards the people that they were policing these are the people they're they're supposed to be protecting. But actually, the the way their mentality in the eighties was more. These are the kind of animals that we have to control. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the idea. And it's amazing, you know, some of those old pictures you back and you see these guys like on horses with clubs, you know. It's just like the... the but, but, but think to yourself of what's required, what has to be done within the police to get people to sort of to think that way. The kind of militaristic mindset that has to be developed. You need to have a culture. You can't just get like, you know, a bunch of soft lads just out of the the sort of uh, training center and expect them to be able to do that kind of stuff. You need to drill it into them over a period of time and to kind of and to develop that mentality. And so that apparently doesn't get drilled back out. No. For, uh, well, of course not, because people don't want to people don't want to think to themselves that they, you know, threw their threw away their life in the service of a lie. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to think that way. Nobody wants to think. Well, actually, I was really part of the problem back then. Yeah. You know, you want to be able to to think of yourself as having been a good person who led a good life we did what we had to do some of this uh, some of the more you know, junior officers and people who helped on the day obviously by the way were praised and I, I did say I skipped ahead a little bit during that quote that David Kahn had you know he, this point was well made that uh, one or two spoke really well in fact you know so it's not like every um, every policeman went with the party line no. uh, although many still did and certainly many of the leading ones still yeah, did institutionally it's clear that they were tr- trying to uh, you know trying to drag their feed along every step of that process. Incredible, absolutely amazing story and amazing reaction to it. It led the news cycle, Ken, in most uh, in most cases in the UK, mm. um, not in the uh, very high-profile cases of the first edition of The Times uh-huh. and also the, the Sun, full stop. Well, The Times really is a, it was a remarkable one. In terms of the front page, yeah. Um, because, you know, so the first, and, and, and it was the first edition, so The Times, uh, first edition, the front page, um, you know, and it goes, Labour MP backed moving Israel to US and anti-Semitism row. Don't go any further with strike public, tells doctors. Tycoon's knighthood at risk over BHS collapse. That's Sir Philip Green. Right. Uh, and a picture of somebody shoveling snow. And also in the top uh, bar, status handbags, the ultimate guide. Uh, that was the story that was replaced with Hillsborough and end at last to smears and lies in the second edition. Status handbags, the ultimate guide, Hillsborough and end at last to smears and lies. Now, the Times sports desk um, contains, you know, is there's a lot of very good football writers working at the Times. We were talking to one of them on Monday, Tony Barrett. And Tony Barrett, as you could see from his Twitter, was appalled by this because you can imagine. I mean, he's he he, he works for the Times. He covers Liverpool. He lives in Liverpool, and this is what's happened. You can imagine his feelings on that issue. Oliver Kay, Rory Smith, all of these people, I I think pretty shocked. I mean, it's you know, you work for the company. You've got to, I suppose, choose your words carefully. Sure. But I'm pretty sure all of them pretty pretty appalled by that. Um, the Times eventually uh, changed it, obviously, for the second edition, and they put out a statement. Uh, which said, The Times led with Hillsborough coverage on all our digital editions throughout the day. This morning we have covered it extensively in the paper with two spreads, the back page, a top leader, and an interactive on the victims. We made a mistake with the front page of our first edition, and we fixed it for the second edition. What do they mean by we made a mistake? Uh, did, they, did they mean we made a technical error? Like, you know, there was supposed to be a different front page? It, it could be clear. If they're really admitting that they got it wrong, it, it could be made a lot more clear, and they could really come out and say, look... We messed this up. Uh, maybe they'd use different terminology than that even. But you take my point. It's like we made a, we, we made a bad editorial call. That would be it. Mm. And we have now fixed that editorial call. We, just we made a mistake. It just seems a bit like, okay, let's just get this done. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, well, if, if we front up, say we made a mistake and apologize, then what can anybody say? All I will say is funny mistake to make. Mm. You know what I mean? A funny mistake to make. And... For the for the credibility of the news, I'm surprised that they did it because for the credibility of the title, it looks terrible. It looks really bad. I mean, it looks as though they're burying a story that they don't want to give exposure to because it reflects badly on their owner, on the on the company that owns them. That's that's not good for your image as a newspaper. So it's a mistake, but it's a very unfortunate one 
you know, unless it wasn't a mistake, which is the other interpretation mm -hmm. that people have, it was a deliberate, let's just, nothing to see here type of thing, you know, which is the, un, which is, let's say, the, the less generous way of looking at it, that they did it deliberately. I don't know. It's it's not a good mistake. All right, that's it for uh, the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. We've got another show coming out later today with Shane Horgan and Stephen Ferris on Leinster against Ulster. Ulster versus Leinster, I should say, in the Pro 12 this weekend. And also, the the two boys are talking a bit about the madness at Munster at the moment with um, the appointment of Razi Rasmussen seemingly over the head of Anthony Foley and just the way that whole thing was handled. In the meantime, thanks, Ken. Thank you, Al. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 